I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service at Ananda Village. I'm Naya Swami Parvati. This is Naya Swami Pranava, and we're very happy to have all of you with us today. I'd like to also especially welcome all of our guests and visitors, wherever they may be from, and all those watching online. I'll read from Rays of the One Light, week 27, Abiding in God. These are commentaries on the Bible and Bhagavad Gita written by Swami Kriyananda from Yogananda's teachings. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Yogananda often emphasized, more often to his disciples than to the general public, but also to everyone generally, for it was a universal teaching, the importance of attunement. For divine understanding cannot be created, it must be perceived. To the disciples, Yogananda spoke of the importance of attunement with the Guru. To others, he urged the importance at least of attuning oneself to higher consciousness. Can an eagle rise without support from the sustaining air? Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. How can we abide in him? Jesus said, If my words abide in you, by words, he meant not only his spoken words, but his vibrations, his consciousness, of which the words are only an expression. We must abide by the teachings, but we must also absorb those teachings into ourselves, that they become our own experience. For disciples of this path, the more in their hearts they live consciously in the presence of the masters, the more they will find the divine presence living within them. And for all truth seekers, whether disciples or not, the more they live sustained inwardly by the awareness of God's presence, the higher they will find themselves soaring in wisdom and joy. For the Bhagavad Gita says in the 10th chapter, I am the source of everything. From me all creation emerges. Blessed with this realization, the wise, awe-stricken, adore me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh,
I'd like to read to you a poem. Normally we read from Yogananda's book, uh, Prayer Demands, uh, Whispers from Eternity, but because this is a special day associated with July 4th, I'd like to read a poem that he wrote back in 1937 called Freedom. Brave cords bind me hand and foot, yet lo, I am free, ever free. Disease, try your tortures, yet I am free, ever free. Health, try your lures, yet I am free, ever free. Death, destroy my body prison, if you will, yet I am free, ever free. Long chains of desires forged in the furnace of incarnations have tried to bind me, but I escape from life to life, and I am at last free, ever free. I enter through the rainbow into the free skies. I am free, ever free. None can bind me unless I bind myself. None can free me unless I know I am free. When I know not exist to ever bind me, then I know I am free, ever free. So on July 4th in this country, the United States of America, that we celebrated Independence Day. For me, it was my first one as a citizen of this country. <laughs> took, took me a few decades. But, uh, and partly that's, I think, for a lot of us. We don't, we don't really identify that we're um, of a country, of a nation. Our home is really universal. So that's more our truth. But, you know, it's a time when we can at least look back and reflect on uh, what the founding fathers of this country really set in motion as much as they could at the time and as much as we can understand in our time. But you think of the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and you think of the Constitution which came 11 years later and what was inherent in those things was brand new for society to see a nation as a republic really being led by a, a process and a purpose that involved the people. And the rulers were there to serve the people. And so you have this famous emphasis that we all know about, and that's that the guarantee, the emphasis, and the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. That's a tremendous thing that happened at that time. It's still a tremendous thing for us now. But as this poem I read, and as the song that the choir sang, if you're seeking freedom, the real freedom that we really are destined to pursue and to attain is freedom from the tyranny of the evil. Freedom from the tyranny of maya. Maya is the Sanskrit word for delusion. There is nothing less than that experience of that fulfillment that is our destiny. Even the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness are simply, those are really the stepping stones along the way to really come to that experience that is our true destiny. Because in a sense, it's the battle between the forces of ego, of darkness, and the forces of our soul qualities, which are the light qualities in God. And when that battle ensues, which happens when we are born and until we become liberated. Our whole purpose in life is simply 
to uncover who we really are in that true freedom. To let go of the identification that we are bound. Because as it says in this poem of Yogananda, that that is binding in itself. That we identify with the world around us as the sole reality. It is a reality. More correctly, it is an expression filtered through many layers of the one true reality. But that freedom comes from us as the topic today states of abiding in God. And I remember uh, in 1990, Parvati and I were moving back from Ananda Sisi. We were there as a part of the team helping to direct the, uh, the community and the retreat there. And in arriving back here at Ananda Village, my role, my assignment was to be the manager of the Expanding Light retreat facility. And after about a week or two, I remember just feeling completely incompetent and uh, sort of wondering what the heck was going on for me personally. It was an unusual thing because I'd done many things in leadership roles prior to that. But for some reason, the karmic bonds, the karmic tests came out pretty strongly at that time. And because, I don't know if you're like this, maybe you're not, maybe I'm unique, that often I've had the thought, once people around me really understand, they're going to say, oh my God, he's in charge? <laughs> and it reminds me of a story that Swami Kriyananda used to say, that um, there were these four uh, women that were having lunch together. And... Uh, uh, this is in Italy, and they were talking about their sons. And the one woman said, well, my son's a priest. And when people greet him, they say, blessed father. And then the next woman says, well, my son's a cardinal. They, when they greet him, they say, your holy eminence. And the third one says, but my son's the pope. And when they greet him, they say, oh, holy father, perfect one of all. And then the fourth one says, well, my son is so big, when people see him, they say, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I always think that the hook is going to come and pull me off stage um, because people are saying, oh my God, in a different way. Um, but it's partly because, and I don't mean that as a false humility thing, it's, it's something that Swami Kriyananda himself would often say that of course, in ourselves, being who we are from our ego, we all should be saying, oh my God, what am I doing or what are you doing? But when we open up and we become instruments and then we can feel God's presence as really the activating force for us, then of course, we're able to do way beyond what we think is in our capacity. And that's really the, the part of Ananda that is important not only Ananda Village, but throughout Ananda worldwide, that we create the opportunities for people to grow into their full, expansive experience of God. And whether that means flubbing some outward experience or maybe not being the best person to do that experience, then that's fine. It really is fine. But what I came across quickly in that evening after feeling somewhat incompetent, if not completely incompetent, um, that I just sat on my bed before 
resting my body down on, on the bed before going to sleep. And I felt Master, which is a name we use in a loving way to describe Paramahansa Yogananda. I felt Master there. I could feel him as well as visualize him. And out of the depth of my heart, I just said silently, I love you, Master. And then I thought, nothing else really matters. I'm going to go the next day and do the best I can. And whether that's a failure in the outer activity, then hopefully I will gain from that. I mean, I felt this strongly. All my real purpose in life was, was to say, I love you, Master, and remember that day in, day out, whether it was before meditation, which seemed easier, or whether it was in the midst of that chaotic, overwhelming, bustling activity of the day, that there was my orientation to abide in God. I love you, Master. Well, that hasn't been every day of my life since then. That was 23 years ago. I've forgotten at times in the bustle of activity. But an interesting story about another devotee. This was a man, when we used to have the center and ashram in San Francisco, we had a teaching center. This was back in the 1980s. And we had an ashram house, a big house. It was called Ananda House, and it was a 45-room mansion with nine and a half bathrooms. And typically, we had between 20 and 30 people living there, almost everyone sharing a room. But there was a man that came, and he was probably in his late 40s, maybe early 50s at the time. And um, he started taking some classes, and I got to know him. And he learned to meditate and start to practice. And then he took this big step um, and moved into the ashram house. Now, he had a rough life prior to that. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he was an alcoholic. He had dealt with the abuse of alcohol for many, many years. He had abusive childhood. So he had a lot that he was working with in that lifetime. And so this move for him to be in the ashram house was quite significant for him. But he didn't stop at that. I mean, he and I used to get together, and we started talking about what next. And he very strongly felt that devotion in his own heart to move up here. And I think this is in 1984, I believe it was, or 83, that he moved up here. And he was doing well, and then suddenly he had a very acute uh, health crisis. He had an ulceration and hemorrhaging of his esophagus. Because of his alcoholic problems, he had ruined a lot of his body, and he was basically internally bleeding to death. So he was rushed to the emergency hospital room in town. And I was in San Francisco and in the Bay Area at that time, so I never got to see him. Um, but many from here would go visit with him. And I heard from one of the other devotees that when this person went to visit this uh, person that was uh, in acute condition, this person that had the condition said, you know, I feel so bad. I couldn't, in the pain that was so excruciating, remember Master. And of course, I immediately thought, the fact that he remembered he forgot <laughs> mean that, meant that he remembered, that the Master was with him, that Yogananda was with him. And isn't that true what happens to us? There's that 
you know, we have great intention to abide in God every moment. And there are times like this friend, in his case, it was acute, excruciating, that didn't give him that opportunity, at least with his conscious mind. And that's important. It was only his conscious mind that could remember his beloved guru. In his heart, in his soul, in his consciousness, he never forgot. And so to come out of where we flubbed it, because we don't have all the dots connected in our conscious experience. The point is, at how soon can we arrive in that experience again, again of saying, I'm yours, Master. I'm yours, Divine Mother. Be thou mine. The point isn't about the challenges. The point is picking up and going into success after the challenges. When we have that power, when we have that forceful conviction that's applied, then we have victory. You know, where there's dharma, where there's adherence to dharma, I was wearing my t-shirt yesterday, where there's adherence to dharma, then there's victory. And dharma means that activated connection in the world around us of doing the right things, of having the right thoughts, of having the attitudes that bring us into harmony. When we collect those and really energize them, bring them into not only a conviction, but as an experience, then we are abiding in God. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Life of Pi, but it's a recent movie that's come out, and we saw it recently on DVD. And I remember reading the book a long time ago, and there's parts of it, and I'm not going to ruin the plot or anything for anybody, um, that uh, are, are kind of disturbing, more disturbing in the book than they are in the film, actually. But, um, but the beginning of the movie and the book is just a very sweet energy. The story is about this boy who takes a nickname Pi, P-I, uh, in India. And his parents run a zoo in Pondicherry in southern India. And at, at a point, um, the city is going to take over the property. They own the property, and so the zoo has to vacate from the property. And so the father feels that the best chance of going forward is to uh, take a boat over to North America, go to Canada, and start a new business. And, and in that process, sell all these amazing exotic zoo animals. Well, the boy that's in this uh, family, he's young. He has an older brother. But in his teenage years, he tunes into, well, actually before that, with his mother reading from the stories of Krishna, of Gopal and Govinda, the names of Krishna in, in his youth. He's very attracted to that. There's a very magnetic thing that's happening for this boy in tuning into Krishna. And then at one point, um, he gets drawn into, his brother um, tempts him to go drink from the holy fontanel uh, thing in, in the Catholic church, you know, where you bless yourself. So his brother says, drink the water. I, I dare you. And so the boy goes in and slurps up the water. And the priest says, you must be really thirsty, and gives him a cup of water. And they start this conversation about why is this God of yours all bloody on the cross? And so they start this conversation. And the boy tunes into the blessedness of Jesus in a very real sense. 
And then he's drawn into the Muslim faith, and he goes to prayers, namaz, and he does the prayers in the mosque. And then he has these uh, encounters with his father, who's a secular and uh, doesn't really believe it. He's a scientist. And, and he's saying, well, you can't, even if you have faith, you can't have faith in three religions. <laughs> but of course, it's sweet, because the, the boy isn't tuning into the religions. The boy is tuning into God. And the flavor of God is different as you approach God in different ways. And that's what he comes across. So what happens as they get on the steamer, um, that they're out of India a day or two, and then a, a, a violent storm happens on the ocean, and the boat sinks. And he jumps onto a lifeboat, and a few of the animals are also on the lifeboat. And then a few of the animals get <laughs> decimated. <laughs> I don't want to ruin the story for you if you haven't seen it. But so uh, the one animal that's left is a Bengal tiger called Richard Parker. He's called Richard Parker because it, in, uh, they got the tiger in the zoo on a list of animals, and they had, Thirsty was the name of the tiger, and Richard Parker was the owner of the tiger, and they got him confused, so Thirsty, <laughs> so Richard Parker, the tiger, was in this lifeboat. You know, that's about 10 feet long and about 3 feet wide, and they're out in the ocean. And they develop a rapport <laughs> over time. I'm going to speed up the story. But the point that it gets to is that they're both pretty much at the end of their life, out in this ocean, in this lifeboat. There's no food. The water is gone. And they look limp and skeletal. And the, boy, the tiger is lying down on the bench in the lifeboat. And the boy goes up to Richard Parker and sits beside and puts the tiger's head on his lap and says, I'm sorry, Richard Parker. We're both going to die. <laughs> and then he says to God, I don't know right then or not, but take me. I am yours. Well, that's probably the most significant point in the movie. Although most people, I don't think that was the most significant point. Because through all of that test that he went through, it's, it's excruciating as a test, obviously, that there he is ready to die. He hasn't lost that connection with his true self. There he is, abiding in God. Take me. It's a powerful message for all of us. The point is, why wait till we get to that point? <laughs> why not Say that now. Take me, God. Not that we have to leave this lifetime with this physical body. That's not the point. But that we're abiding in God. And our hearts are always saying, 